following along as I read from Exodus 20, 12 through 17. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's, <coughs> your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lead us. We thank you so much for loving us just as we are. And I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and be with Alan as he uh, brings your message today. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our uh, study through the book of Exodus, and we're doing so because of how um, the New Testament pictures this story for us as being a, a living demonstration of what it means to be delivered from the slavery of our Egypts, from our sin and its particular uh, enslavements that it's brought to each one of us, and particularly what it means to experience the growing freedom of being out from underneath those enslavements. Because you see, over and over again in the New Testament, God says that we are all slaves to sin, just like Israel was enslaved here. And that God has rescued us from that control of sin, just as he did uh, from the Israelites. And so the New Testament is continually pointing us back to this event as a living picture of the spiritual rescue that God has given to us from our enslavement to sin. And so what we're really in particular looking at as we go through these various sections is we're trying to learn from these stories uh, how God was teaching them that now that you're free physically from those enslavements in Egypt, how, how can I lead you to actually experience that freedom? I mean, it's, it's yours, but it's just not real to you yet. Because as we've said all along here, we all know... Uh, I mean, I certainly do know this from my own experience, and I'm assuming that most of you do too, that it's easy, easier, I guess, to get yourself out from underneath of some form of enslavement than it is to get that enslavement out of your own heart. Um, just as an example, I think many of us still have the disapproval ringing in our heads um, from our parents' disapproval, our parents' condemnation, our parents saying, you could have done better, even though we've long since moved out of their house, even though they may be long since dead, because those deeper enslavements of the heart, uh, we, we pick them up during those times, and they're really difficult for us to get rid of. And I think that's exactly what God is teaching his people here. Sure, I, I delivered you from your slavery in Egypt, but you still act and think like you're a slave in your heart. You still don't trust me. You're still fearfully looking out for number one. And you don't even know what it means to live in community. And so now we're coming into the second portion of the Ten Commandments that deals with our relationships with one another. You see, last week we looked at how the first four commandments show us how that we can be free to worship. How we can be freed from the worship of other things that always enslave us. And how we can be freed to worship the God that we were designed for. 
Freed from worshiping things that always demand more and more and more from us until they consume us. And freed to worship the God who finds us beautiful and perfect because of the work of our brother Jesus. And so now this week we're coming to commandments 5 through 10 which focus on our relationships with one another. And how we can be freed from self. And really how we can be freed from the love of self to be able to love others from the heart. And you see, that really is the purpose uh, here of, of the giving of the law. God is saying, now that I've freed you from the slavery of your sin so that it doesn't own you anymore, I want you to understand what it actually means to live as if you're free. And these laws, these rules, these regulations, these Ten Commandments are really laws of freedom. They are the owner's manual for humanity given directly from the designer himself so that we can learn to live in the freedom that he's given to us. Listen, like the Israelites, we're all learning how to live under the rule of a, a new king because we've all had kings that have ruled us in the past. You know, perform or you're worthless. Achieve greatness or you're wasting your talents. You can't cope without alcohol and drugs. Get straight A's or I'm not proud of you. Be a better person or God won't love you. Have perfect kids or you're a failure as a mother. And you see, we all have these residual voices of these old kings still ringing in our hearts. And God is trying here to teach us what it means to live under his rule instead of that rule. And listen, we can even have religious versions of these false kings. You know, you may have grown up thinking of God only as a, a mean ogre who has to be appeased with your good life. And, and every time you blow it, you just know he's mad at you. And, and he probably won't answer your prayers anymore. And, and he might even be having second thoughts about letting you into his heaven. And so you live in constant fear and shame. And you see, God is using these laws here to teach us that, hey, that's not who I am. That's not what I require. Because I am the one who rescues you from your prisons of shame. I am the one who delivered you from Egypt, from the land of slavery. Therefore, listen to how I have designed you to be a fully free human. Listen to my laws as the pathway to find that freedom. The pathway to being fully human. And so I want us to start here simply by asking the question, how is the law love? Uh, because I, I don't know about you, but when I hear a list of thou shalt nots, the last thing I naturally think about is love. <laughs> I might start feeling guilty at times about all the things I'm not doing. At other times, I'm ready to push back, say, oh yeah, <laughs> who are you to tell me what to do? Because see, the, the natural bent of the human heart, the sinful heart, is that we think that we should be free to be who we want to be. I want to be the one to choose how I live my life. And I don't want anybody else's restrictions trying to be placed upon me. Not my parents, not my government, and certainly not some absentee God with all his rules and regulations. And you see, the, the very notion of thou shalt not is antithetical to the new American way of life. If I want to be a different gender, that's my choice. If I want to be a wild animal hiking through the forest on the weekends, and I've seen people doing that, freaky. 
That's my choice, right? If I want to kill my baby, that's my choice. And so we now live in a country that defines freedom as being able to do whatever you want without any restrictions. And that just goes completely against everything that God says here. Because what we see as a list of death, God intends as a list of life. And what we define naturally as the path to freedom and life, off doing our own thing, God tells us that it only leads to death. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And you see, what what Paul is saying is that love is the law underneath the law. See, God himself is love. He's not a mean ogre that has to be placated. He's the very embodiment of love. And he gives us this list of commandments to show us what loving your neighbor actually looks like. And you see, that's exactly what Jesus said when when he summarized uh, this text in Matthew 22. Someone asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And you see, Jesus here tells us that the entire second section of the Ten Commandments that we're looking at today is simply showing us how to love our neighbor. And as we said last week, we we need to look at the Ten Commandments like we look at the owner's manual to a new car. I mean, sure, you're free to put water in your gas tank if you want. No one's going to, you know, come and arrest you. You're free to put uh, maple syrup or peanut butter instead of oil in your engine. But if you do, you're going to ruin your car because that's not how your car was designed. And you see, God is coming with these commands here to tell us, this is how I designed you. And if you follow them, it will lead to life. And if you ignore them, which you're free to do if you want, it'll lead to death. Listen, as much as our culture pushes back at this notion of having a design from a creator and how these rules are for our good, it's really nothing new or strange because every parent knows they've got to do this with their kids all the time. I mean, kids, sometimes it seems as if they're bent on trying to kill themselves, right? And, and it's our job to somehow keep them alive until they reach adulthood. You know, don't touch that. Don't put that in your mouth. Keep away from that hot stove. Don't stick that knife in the electrical outlet. Don't talk to strangers. And it seems like the list just goes on and on and on. There are dangers everywhere. And and why do parents have to do this? Because a child's instincts have to be trained to understand their environment. They're not aware of all the many dangers around them. But eventually, a child can look back and say, Oh, they weren't just trying to ruin all my fun. They were just trying to keep me from killing myself. And you see, that's exactly what God is doing here with Israel. And it's what he's doing with us. When he says, thou shalt not, over and over and over again here, he's instructing us in the kinds of things that we were designed for and the kinds of things 
that were never intended. And he's keeping us from dangers that will kill us, quite literally. I mean, think about it. If you've grown up your entire life as a slave, it, your natural instinct, obviously, is going to be to look out for number one, self-protection. And nobody takes the time to even think about community in that kind of environment. And so they have to be taught what living in community looks like. And for those of us who've been rescued from our slavery to self, we too have to be taught what it means to live within a loving community. Because in a world of sin, which is a world addicted to self, we're not very practiced at doing that either. I mean, everything in my world right, revolves around me. What I want, what I like, what makes me happy, and what it creates is the chaos that we all see unfolding around us. I mean, for, for those of you who can bear to watch it, and I admit I'm not one of them, I think, think of the Game of Thrones, right? A world of chaos and self-protection and taking whatever you want, whenever you want it. And if you're not familiar with that, that's fine. Just look at the atrocities going on in Israel. Raping women, beheading children, celebrating their achievements with pride. And what God is saying here is, yeah, that's the world of chaos that's all addicted to self. But that's the kind of chaos that I'm calling you out of. The chaos of self-indulgence. And I'm calling you into a new world of love and respect where people are valued simply because they're made in the image of God. I mean, think about how God originally created his world. What were his very first marching orders? The, the original command from God was, go and fill the world, be fruitful and multiply. Harness the raw materials of the earth to create beauty and technology and music and art and, and iPhones. I don't think he ever had Androids in mind. It was iPhones, right? And, and see, God's, God's command for us what was, according to our design, was simply have fun, frolic in my world, play in my world. And there was only one thou shalt not, only one thing. And it was designed as a constant reminder that God is God and you're not, right? Just that one thing, don't eat from this tree because I'm God and you're not. And it was the only thou shalt not that was needed, but I want you to stop and think for a second about the necessity of having to tell us with a constant picture that I'm God and you're not. Why would God even need to do that? Because, listen, it must mean that we have an incredible capacity for power and beauty and creativity because we've been designed after his image. And it's a power that's so vast and so great that we are tempted to believe that we are God's. And he gave us that potential for our enjoyment, but it was to be like him, but beneath him. Of course, you know how the story goes. We didn't want to be beneath him. We wanted to be him. And so we were kicked out of the garden, and we were expelled from his presence, and we were expelled into a world where everything moves from being a source of joy and satisfaction because it mirrors the God that we were designed to serve, and it now becomes an alternative source of life. Because we now turn to those images of God and they enslave us. But they enslave us because they're only pictures. And it has no power to actually save us. And so God comes along here and says, guys, let me reorient you back to your original design. Let me show you the beauty of all that I created you 
to be. This is the real path to frolicking and joy and beauty and satisfaction. And the list of thou shalt nots is a guide to help you get there. Listen, with your kids, eventually you're going to reach the place where you can stop saying no all the time. I know it doesn't feel like that now. I've been through that stage. It feels like it lasts forever. But eventually you will reach the place where you can start teaching them the positive. This is who you are. This is what you were made to do. Here's your place in the world. Go for it. Frolic. Enjoy the things that God has designed you to do. And you see, that's exactly what God does. Because all through the rest of the Bible, we have pictures and instructions of the positive use of the law that Israel was not able to understand yet. I mean, imagine telling a person who had spent their entire life as a slave, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, first of all, most slaves don't love themselves very highly. They don't have a high view of themselves. And what few... uh, self-preservation instincts that they do have are totally wrapped up in survival and in me. And so there wasn't a lot of love to have and certainly not a lot of love to share. And so God had to teach them this is what it means. God has to fill these commands with content. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. This is what it looks like to live in community. And listen, as you grow In your relationship with God, the same things will start to happen to you over time. What what at first sounds like a bunch of negative restrictions that are meant to kill your fun and fill you with guilt will slowly become, uh, slowly be seen as beautiful ways to create community. As you see these laws promoting the good and the flourishing of my neighbor. You see, the law moves from being the smallest, most restrictive way that I can possibly get by with trying to please this overbearing God, to begin, it begins to expand into the positive implications of what I should do in its place. And then it expands even further into my thoughts and the motivations of my heart. And eventually, God begins to work a love for these commands in my heart because it's a reflection of the God that I was designed to be in relationship with. And you see, slowly over time, thou shalt not covet begins, you know, I need to show more respect to my neighbor. I need to value and celebrate with him the beauty of all the blessings that God has given him instead of being jealous all the time. See, this is far more than a command not to envy. It's a command to promote the good of my neighbor. See, the command against bearing false witness moves from thou shalt not tell a lie to how can I speak the truth to my neighbor in a way that promotes his good? How can I bring him um, good news and hope for his life? How can I honor him by keeping my word to him? Because the rules move from being restrictions to being expressions of God's character. The character of this God who rescued me from my slavery in my Egypt And that's the God that I want to celebrate and live for with all of my heart and soul and mind. See, it's it's kind of like moving from being a kid who only hears no all the time or or a teenager who only uh, sees his fun being squashed to beginning to, to see the spirit beneath the law and the beauty of all that is designed to bring us and how it creates a community of love and trust. I mean, imagine a community like that breaking out in the Middle East. (laughs) 
Imagine that happening in your household. Thou shalt not murder. Moves from, check, haven't murdered anybody this week. Move on, I feel good about myself. To say, no, God wants me to treat everybody with dignity because that's his heart. And so over time, I'm coming to see that he's just as upset with me for devaluing another person with my honk and gesture on the road as he is with the taking of another life. Because this is an image bearer of God before me. And so it's more than a rule not to kill them, but it's a heart that says I shouldn't even be angry with them. I shouldn't belittle them. I shouldn't bash them or make fun of them, even if I radically disagree with them. I mean, even treating people with indifference is a violation of their dignity. And God calls us to honor that. Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Moves from a law against having sex outside of marriage to becoming any kind of desire, even just in my thoughts, that violate the dignity of that person's most precious exposure of intimacy. When it's not mine to have, and it's not mine to see, it's not mine to even contemplate. In fact, it's actually a command for me to do all I can to promote the good of maybe their marriage and all that it can be. To promote the dignity of their personhood instead of objectifying their body. Listen, as you mature in your relationship with God, you will begin to see the law underneath the law, which is love. Love toward God in the first four commandments and then love toward your neighbor in the last six. And it turns all these heavy restrictions into a beautiful picture of what loving community looks like. I mean, this is how the psalmist could come to say, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. When's the last time you were able to say that to your heart? (laughs) See, you can as the law moves from being something that points its finger at you and starts pointing its finger at God and all the beauty that he designed us for. Can you imagine what the Middle East would look like today if this is how people lived? Can you imagine how your world and my world would look like if we lived like this as a community with justice and respect, valuing others ahead of ourselves rather than feeling the need to prove our moral goodness to a watching world or to be better than everybody else? It would be a slice of heaven as we learn to shed our old values of our old slavery to look out for number one and don't trust this God and protect my own interests and learn to lean into our new natures that reflect God's heart by loving others and serving others and deferring to others. And you see, this I think is why God comes at us initially in the form of a command, thou shalt not, because we would never go there on our own. We would never pursue this kind of selfless life on our own. We would never naturally value the life and the dignity of others before our own. And so he starts with a command. And as far-fetched as it might seem for these laws to transition into images of beauty, this is what God is doing in these verses. See, just as they couldn't imagine life without their captors, so we can't imagine life without ours. A life without me at the center. A life without everything designed about what makes me happy and me comfortable and me safe. And so he has to show us, hey guys, this is what it looks like. And this is what God desires for us here today. To remind us that he has already rescued us from the dominion of slavery. And to urge us to begin to live and to act as if we truly are free. 
See, because of Jesus, we're finally free to be able to live without being afraid of, of being taken advantage of. Because the only thing I really need is Jesus, and nobody can ever take that away. We're finally free from the pressure of having to get everything just right, because Jesus was right for me. We're free from our fears of, uh, of everything in life falling apart, because in Jesus we already have everything that we need. Listen, how do you view God's law? Is it the minimum requirement to prove yourself? Or is it the pathway to love? That, I think, is how the law is love. And then secondly, and it's only a two-point sermon today, so I guess lastly, I want to end by asking how the law is actually fulfilled. Because the, the more you come to understand the heart of God, and the more you come to see how the law expands to fill every crevice of your heart and your thoughts and your motives, the more unattainable it actually becomes. As I said last week, it's like being really dirty and walking from the dark into a streetlight at night. And the closer you get to the light, the dirtier you see that you actually were all along. You just couldn't tell because you were in the dark. But it, but it takes coming into the light to be able to see it. And I think, frankly, that is how you know that God is work, at work in your life. When you begin to see how much further your heart is from God than you actually thought it was. I mean, not that you're getting better and, and it's easier to obey God and the Christian life, oh, this is free and victory and I don't have any struggles. No, 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 not at all. But that it's, I think you're experiencing more and more the weight of God's perfection, the weight of God's glory upon your heart that I could never attain. Because you see, one of the purposes of the law is to show you just how far short of it that you actually fall. And therefore, how desperately we need to be rescued. Listen, even with grace, you should feel a growing weight of the demands of the law upon your heart. All right? Not because you're condemned unless you can keep them, but because I see how desperately I need Jesus. Even knowing I'm forgiven, it should undo me when I see how selfish I am, when I see how easily I put others down, it, it, when I see I, I do things in a way that always make me look good. It should humble me to my knees to say, man, I am far more screwed up than I thought I was. So what do we do with that? How does the law find its fulfillment when we are so woefully incapable of keeping it? And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he says, there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Listen, the, the only way that we can get out from underneath the condemnation of the law and all the guilt of our falling shorts is because of Jesus, right? Jesus met every requirement of the law for us, the law of love, because Jesus was condemned <coughs> to actually be sin in our place. It was more than the fact that he was an innocent man who died in our place. The Bible says he actually became sin. Why? Why is that necessary? Because, you see, it's, it's not enough for God simply to tell us about his love, 
to tell us about the requirements to love one another. Maybe have his disciples write a book about it and, and get Gutenberg to, you know, press it out for everybody to read. That's not going to be enough. But he comes himself to demonstrate the full extent of that love so that we might be able to experience that love as the beginning motivation to love others and as the actual power to be able to pull it off. Listen, because of Jesus, we are now free from having to meet the requirements of the law that we could never meet anyway because they have been obeyed for us by Jesus and they've been credited to our spiritual accounts and their full obedience is our full obedience. And that means that we now have the freedom to love others through his obedience as we grow in our love of that same obedience. I mean, think about how the love of Jesus plays itself out. Jesus was in a, in a perfect love relationship in heaven with the, the Trinity. But he wasn't content to leave us out of that circle of love. He wanted to draw us in. And so he did more than yell his love down to us. He did more than have his disciples write us a book to guide us. But he came down himself to demonstrate the full extent of that love by living the life of perfection that we owe to God and by dying in our place for the rebellion that we started against him. And that is what love looks like. I mean, listen to how Jesus fulfills the law for us. When, when we not only rejected the will and the wisdom of our earthly fathers over and over again, but we rejected our ultimate father who made us, Jesus honored his father by obeying him and submitting to his will, even to the point of being rejected by that father in his death. When we, when we are filled with murderous hatred toward other people who have crossed us or reflect values that, we, that just seem to be stupid and foolish to us, we just love to condemn them and bash them and tear them down. When, when we are filled with that same murderous hatred toward God for messing with my life and not always giving me the things that I want, Jesus holds your life and my life as being more valued, valuable to him than his own. And so he gives it up for us. When, when we were out prostituting ourselves to the gods of money and sex and ambition, being as unfaithful to God as we possibly could be, Jesus remained faithful to you, his bride, the church, as he hangs there on the cross and bleeds for his bride. When we were out stealing his glory, trying to build our own kingdom, Jesus gave everything for us. He not only gives us his life, but he gives us his cloak of righteousness to wear so that we actually have all that was his. We actually wear it as if it's our own. When we spoke lies and perverted justice and truth and tore down our neighbor, Jesus remained silent and bore all the lies thrown at him so that he might give us his righteousness. I mean, think about it. That was the greatest act of injustice ever known. Jesus, the perfect one, taking our sins and giving us messed up people, his righteousness. When we coveted the things of this world that promised to make us happy and content, but in the end only lead to disappointment and death, Jesus clearly decided that he wanted you and me as his companions for all eternity more than he wanted any success, more than he wanted to be popular, more than he wanted an easy life staying in heaven and never leaving the Father in the first place. And he did all that so that we could have a taste of what real life with the Father is like. Jesus did all these things that we might experience this law of love expressed toward us to melt 
our hearts with his loving grace so that we could begin to see the beauty of God's design in these commands and then so that we could begin to love others the way he loved us. Listen, if you want to experience the transforming power of God in your life, you're not going to find it by knuckling down and forcing yourself to obey these laws as best you can. It only comes as you first see Jesus. Secondly, look at the love that he has expressed toward you. Thirdly, ask the Spirit that he might deepen your experience of that love and make it more real to your heart, more real than the other loves that vie for your attention every day. And then fourthly, develop the discipline to meditate in everything that he's done for you. And only then can, I guess call it fifthly, take these laws and start obeying them out of love for Jesus as a way to express that love to others. Let me end with just reminding of those again. If you want to experience the transforming power of God, it comes as you see Jesus, all right? You don't look at yourself and how far short I'm falling and how bad I am and how messed up I am. You see Jesus, all right? And you look at the love that he's expressed toward you. You ask that the Holy Spirit would come and deepen your experience of that love, that he would make it real to your heart. And then you develop a discipline of learning to meditate on all that he's done. I mean, you do that every day anyhow. You meditate on all the things you don't have. You meditate on all the things you wish you had. You meditate constantly. Man, I wish I could get that new this or I could get rid of that person. We're constantly meditating on all the negative. He's telling us to meditate on the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And only as we do that will it enter our hearts so that we can take these commands and start obeying them out of love for Jesus as a way to express God's love toward them. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are um, not very good at keeping these laws. Uh, We're not even good at our motivation for keeping them because so often we're trying to earn something. We're trying to earn your favor and your blessing. We're trying to earn the reputation uh, of, of others in this world. And we don't always approach your law the way that we ought to. We don't see it as love. We don't see it as a way to experience love and a way to uh, convey that love toward others. And I pray that you would forgive us for misunderstanding your law, for being so consumed with ourselves that when we look at your law, all we see is us. All we see is our shortcomings and we don't see Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help for us to be overwhelmed by the fact that you sent your son to obey them for us so that we could be freed from having to do it ourselves and therefore freed to love others. Lord, teach us more and more each day what it means to love those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name.